Hello and welcome to Technically Speaking, a podcast where scientists and engineers come together to chat about a common interest, share knowledge and satisfy some curiosity. I'm Laura and in this episode I'm joined by Antonia to talk about sustainability and what it really means. So Antonia, you're an energy and sustainability analyst, so what's your experience? I've been uh, in academia and did a bit of research on sustainability. I was looking at electricity generation in the UK and battery storage, as well as the more renewable technologies. And now I work in energy management. It has a lot of links to sustainability. And in general, I just like to read about sustainability, what's new on in the market, what people are doing. So, yeah. So you've got a lot of knowledge about this area. And to me, sustainability seems to be pretty much a buzzword mm. that people like to use. But I'm not entirely sure that there are companies and places that actually practice sustainability. I'd be interested to hear your thoughts on that. I guess a good starting point is defining what is meant as sustainability from an engineering point of view. Yeah, so a lot of um, people would refer to almost like a textbook answer from the 1987 UN Brundtland Commission definition of sustainability as meeting the needs of the present without compromising the ability of future generations to meet their own needs. Uh, That sounds very profound, though. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. um, It also doesn't give you direct instruction about what is and isn't sustainable. It's just a kind of, in general, live your life without stopping other people from living theirs seems to be the answer. Yeah. (laughs) doesn't really help an engineer say well we need to do this which is where I feel a lot of this stuff comes from if we're gonna engineer bridges and energy systems and product development chains there needs to be some practical or as I think of it engineering-y way of doing it. Yeah and I think the sort of key point as well is it's not just about sustainable full stop it's sustainable development so we're not trying to uh keep the status quo because if you think about the original dictionary definition of sustain it could just be conserve but it's actually about you know making sure as a as a species or as a planet or community we're all growing and developing it's just what kind of growth we're having that's why the united nations came up with the sustainable development goals about you know addressing inequality in the world whether it's about uh, sexism racism or economics so it really encompasses what we call the three pillars of sustainability environmental economic and social okay I've, I've heard of those I've seen various diagrams of this where it's literally three pillars holding up a roof that's called sustainability <laughs> yeah. or there are Venn diagrams where the three different circles overlap to form sustainability in the centre. Yeah. Those three concepts seem sensible to choose, environment, economy and social aspects. What does that mean in practice? If we ever get an issue like the solar cells episode, you need energy, so you generate it from the sun. That seems a good idea. The sun isn't going to run out in our lifetime, so that ticks the box of meets future generation needs. But having the other aspect of well, is it affordable? If we have to replace the cells frequently, how affordable is it? And then there's a social aspect of who makes the cells and what sort of environment are they working in? 
So there's the social element. And then finally, environmental element. Where do we get the resources to make it? We don't generate electricity from nothing. We use silicon, metals, elements, and then make the solar cells. So how, how are they made? So I guess sustainability kind of is thinking about everything that goes into everything or on an engineering project, you might consider the life cycle. Have you come across project life cycles before? I'm aware of it, yeah. So you don't just think about the product you were doing and then trying to sell it. You're thinking about what happens to it afterwards and at end of life, who is responsible for it and is it useful? Could it be used as something else? Does it need to be disposed of responsibly? And then at the other end of it, there's where are you getting your resources from to make this product? And have you done due diligence to find out where they come from and if they're sourced in a way that doesn't damage the environment and societies? Yeah. That's what I understand of life cycle assessment. Yeah, or it just in general, um, I think a lot of civil projects have this kind of life cycle approach to it as well, thinking about how are you going to bring all those materials to a place because it's not just as simple as transporting one thing but you trying to move lots of concrete and steel and it's not just as simple as putting it on the road sometimes so I think that's how engineers think about that bigger picture and how everything interconnects you know because they're doing larger scale projects that might not be as easy or replicating it from just the lab bench you know it makes sense to have a slightly inefficient cell because it proves a concept but once you try to use that to power the whole world uh, what's the impact of that yeah we were talking about that in our co2 episode weren't we we were talking about like why aren't we capturing co2 from the atmosphere one of the reasons was because although you can do it in the lab quite easily when you scale that up to an industrial process it doesn't scale so well so it's it's not as economic to do it and you've got all this co2 that's captured in um, a polymer or a membrane or some sort of solution that you can't get out and there's no use for it so although we could design that process it's not worthwhile to do. It'd be nice if we could, though, and just capture CO2 and solve a bit of a problem. I mean, we come across this a lot with reusing things. Why don't we reuse things more? It's just because it's just not that effective. There's a reason why it stopped being useful in that, in that way. Again, referring to another episode that we did, which was the circular economy episode where we used the example of fashion. It'd be great if we could reuse all our clothes, but maybe I donated that because it wasn't in fashion anymore and no one else wants it now. It's from the 90s. Uh, actually, I take that back. 90s fashion is back in, isn't it? Well, that's it. Everything cycles around. So you may as well just stockpile clothes for about 30 years and then reuse them. Is that practical? Depends how much space you've got, doesn't it? Mm. But then is that better than shredding those clothes or just putting them in landfill? Or apparently there are like massive wastelands of fast fashion in the Atacama Desert where there's clothing that has no use because it was made inefficiently to begin with it wasn't made to last mm. is just floating around the desert but I feel like clothing it's not that it's not useful necessarily it's that it's just not seen as fashionable that's more like a, a social way of manipulating a supply chain constantly getting people to buy new things by making them think what they've got isn't worthy it's true, yeah. Oh dear. You know, we're supposed to be an engineering and science podcast and I feel like we've just gone to... <laughs> I don't know if an engineer or a scientist can dictate what society should wear. We might end up just 
I mean, for safety points of view, yeah, we should actually dictate what we wear. But on a societal point of view, I don't think that's going to fly, is it? No, that is very true. I think that is the conclusion we were sort of coming to at the end of the um, circular economy episodes. There are other ways where this comes up. I mean, we were talking about supply chain briefly and right at the start of the pandemic, things like supermarkets had massive supply chain issues because people were consuming things a different way. They were stockpiling toilet paper and pasta, I think. Yeah, no, I definitely I definitely remember going to the shelves and just like, yeah, I guess I don't really want to eat pasta this week. So there is no pasta. So I guess, hmm. Potatoes, all the long life stuff was all gone, but loads of fresh things were there. That illustrated quite well how fragile a lot of these supply chains are and how much effort goes into balancing what I think are quite complicated systems. Going back to my master's, there's um, a type of manufacturing called just-in-time, Yeah, where you literally get the stuff coming into your factory just in time to need it and then ship it out to someone else just in time for them need yeah the idea of it is you know you kind of know that there's a demand for it and so you're just replacing what's been sold so you don't have lots of waste which in a sort of steady state environment everything's kind of normal and not changing a lot which I don't know if that ever happens, but, you know, there's there's a history and a precedence for it so they can predict it, then it makes sense. But yeah, it becomes a very um, rigid system, not very adaptable. And maybe it also means that for us, we also can only operate in these narrow, narrow bands. So it kind of leaves some people out of it if they're not yeah (laughs) I don't know I'm talking philosophy again this doesn't (laughs) (laughs) so we're going down this really philosophical route (laughs) and that it sounds like that is a lot of what sustainability is about but if there's all this engineering involved maybe we can find like a practical example maybe sticking with the food industry and talking about farming what what would a sustainable farming system look like yeah that I think that would be quite interesting I think it's almost like you can just say what principles should be there based on again the three pillars you know that when we're producing food it feeds everyone and it's affordable and it doesn't harm the environment simple right I suspect there's a bit of a competition between it being affordable and harming the environment because it was it was decades ago and there was this big thing about DDT which was a pesticide that was being applied to pretty much everything from the sound of it and it had horrible consequences for elsewhere in nature. There were like bird eggs that were getting so thin that the offspring didn't survive inside the egg. So all the other species were declining. And that then had knock-on effects for things that were outside of the food system, but still a problem. A lot of it goes back to, is this thing a carcinogenic or something, but we don't know yet because we haven't seen the long-term effects of it. So again, with the DDT... We kind of tested it in a narrow scenario and then didn't actually see it in a proper environment. We need food and we we need it to be made cheap so that we can afford to all um, eat. That's sometimes the cost. That sometimes maybe should we almost have an environmental buffer of how much money we should then use to repair the systems. Say for, for fossil fuel extraction, you kind of put the money in to, to get the equipment there and the permits and the drilling and maybe purchasing the land, etc. But then we don't think about the long-term consequence of this is a, a resource that will take millions of years to replace. 
what is the cost to society if we use that for the short term gain of using it for burning for energy when there are other options? Did we put the right cost into it when we, you know, when we put money into the project? That's an engineering way to look at it. Yeah, and I know that you have to do an environmental impact assessment before doing something like that. You do now anyway, maybe you probably didn't in the past. But then I guess that impact assessment is only as good as the knowledge that we currently have. As you said, like we learn more all the time. Uh, apparently, there's um, there are some lakes, and I think it's Canada, that are perfectly natural, pristine, and they put all sorts of different pollutants in to see what the effect is. Wow. <laughs> So they're deliberately polluting these watercourses. <laughs> and you, you couldn't really do that in the lab because the ecosystems are so complex in comparison to what you do in a lab where you control everything or you need to artificially recreate the entire ecosystem. I don't know how I feel about that kind of experiment. Like, could you get that lake back once you've, once you've done all this? Or what if there's knock-on effects like, you know, the invasive species that you think, oh, I'm just going to solve one problem. And then you create a problem because it spiraled out of control. Like, <laughs> I can't imagine this. I would like to think for what's quite a big scale scientific project, they're pretty much monitoring everything and they'll have some sort of remediation plan and just adapt to that changing environment. And I kind of feel like doing it in that way is probably better than saying, yeah, you can use that fertilizer or you can use that pesticide. We don't necessarily know what all the effects are going to be, but let's just let everyone around the world use it and then we'll deal with it later on. Yeah, I suppose the controlled experiment is better than none at all. Yeah, but it is an odd one in that it seems morally wrong to be experimenting on the environment in that way. You might have an assessment to judge whether or not this has a smaller impact than if you did it on another lake and you can weigh up the benefits. So, you know, in these kind of things, you need tools to help you measurements, criteria. And again, I guess that's why we have definitions of sustainability, because that's what you would base your assessment on. You'd kind of have questions that you'd ask, like, what effect will this have on water quality? What effect would it have on biodiversity? How much energy would it use? You know, noise pollution, light pollution, because that will have effects on the residents or the wildlife as well. And then economically, you know, does it create jobs? Does it put people out of jobs? You know, we start off with principles and then we get somewhere towards how do we actually make it happen? Yeah, and I guess how do you make it happen differs depending on what you're doing and where you're doing it. Yeah, for sure. Like each sort of place will have different things that are a little bit more affected like a place that's already an industrial site probably doesn't have as much biodiversity to start with compared to if you were doing it in this lake <laughs> but then that might be a critical part of the project it's almost like an optimization problem if you were trying to write this for a scientist or engineer if this then that and <laughs> what are your constraints for this <laughs> and that's how you take philosophy into an actionable plan. You come up with a whole load of logic gates that say if and then. <laughs> Maybe you can have continuous variables, you know, not they don't have to be discrete. That would make more sense because most things happen on a continuum, right? I think we're back into our how is it learn to code episode and why do we enjoy it? <laughs> In academia, there is, or, or beyond academia as well, there is, how do you actually measure sustainability? That's a question that's not been answered um, because at the end of it, someone should just be able to say, yes, that is sustainable. No, that isn't sustainable. 
but that that doesn't work in practice. You can't just say yes or or no or bad or good. Ah, so that's why it kind of seems like a bit of a buzzword because it's it's difficult to explain it. Yeah, I think so. To explain why something is sustainable or even if it really is. Because like you're trying to basically cover everything that could happen ever <laughs> into a good or bad. It's it's like the good place. Have you seen the good place? I did, but I don't remember liking it. Oh. So something about it just, it's one of those things where I thought I probably should find this funny, but I'm not sure why I'm not finding it funny. I'm just a bit nonplussed, so I'll stop watching it. Maybe I should give it another go. How, how far did you get into it? Because I don't know if I want to go into it and spoil it. Probably not that far. It's fine. I'll probably forget all the details anyway of a particular show, so it's fine. I can always rewatch things I've seen. Fair enough. Like, if someone tells me something that I've not watched, I go in anticipating the thing that they were talking about. And then if it doesn't show up for ages, I'll just keep questioning it. Just be like, where is that thing that they said? They said this was going to happen. And it could have been something really minor. That was what happened. I think my friend said, oh, there was this brilliant moment. And I was like, what's this brilliant moment? This brilliant moment itself is quite subjective, kind of like sustainability from the sound of it. What's brilliant to that person isn't necessarily brilliant to you. Well, I wouldn't say it's subjective. I think there's just a lot of variables. Yeah, fair enough. A lot of variables. There can, there are ways to make it a bit more objective, but I think at the end of the day, there probably will be some constraints to anything being measured. Fair enough. So if I'm a consumer of a product or wanting something from a company, what sort of questions could I be asking to know when you say it's sustainable? Is it really sustainable? It's mm, a really good question. It's hard to like say what what could work for every single product. Can we find a specific example? I was trying to find something really obvious. And this was, is an e-reader better than having physical books? Because mm. a lot of people see books and go, oh, we're chopping down trees. And a lot of environmental pictures seem to be about trees. Really? Yeah. Like, so, so I, I feel like that was like one of the original sort of like, why paper recycling, you know, it's like, oh, save the trees. And any picture of like being eco uses trees or greenery to represent it all. Yeah. Deforestation is a problem. I should I should say this out. <laughs> I should state this. It is a problem. So I'm not <laughs> saying we shouldn't care about trees. It's just it's used a lot. But see, I, I very rarely buy new books. I'm a big reader. Um, I have an e-reader and I quite like using it. I prefer reading physical books because it's a, a different experience. You know, you mm. can, it looks different. You can feel the pages. You can see really easily how far through it you are. And it's just different to hold a book rather than a thin electronic device. But then my electronic device means I've got access to books that I can't find in my local library, for example, which is where I get most of my books. You still, go to, you still get books from the library? I do, yeah, and I donate my old books back to the library as well. That's and great. I think that's a really, yeah, that's a really good way of making sure that it's a free resource that's there to continue, and we're not cutting down trees to read a new book because someone else threw a book away. But then my e-read is a lot more portable, and I can take a lot more books with me. So if I'm travelling for a long time, maybe I'd take the e-reader instead. Yeah. And download books from the library. That's the thing. If you have a book on your e-reader, you can't pass that on to someone else, though. No. Yeah, that does it kind of annoy me in a way. I understand the purpose behind digital rights management, isn't it, DRM? But at the same time, I'm used to just handing a book or a CD because I'm quite old <laughs> or recording things from the radio. But no one does that anymore, do they? Yeah, no one records radio. 
right? I guess people don't anymore. But how would you? Because I, I used to do it on a tape deck. Yeah. I feel like we're getting a bit distracted now. <laughs> <laughs> but getting back to my original question. I want to go back to the e-reader, sorry. Um, just because I feel like yeah. there is a problem statement you can have, which is, is an e-reader more environmentally friendly than a book? Mm-hmm. And should that be a consideration if you're buying an e-reader? Because honestly, when I did search paper books and e-readers, a lot of like e-reader manufacturers were saying it's more eco-friendly. And so how, how do you prove it? And then there is all the other aspects of preference and portability, all the cost and, and all that. But there is a definitive way to say whether it is or not. Oh, okay. And that's what life cycle assessment can be used for. That's one of the sustainability measuring tools. There's other ways, but there's, you know, looking at it and assigning values. So you can sort of see it as an input output process, input these materials, get this waste or emissions to water, air, land, and you get this product. And then this product has this lifespan and you know you'll use energy to recharge it um how was it distributed to you as well how was it stored was it packaged and then all the waste that comes from all that and then at the end do you recycle it do you pass it on and then so on and so forth so you can do this kind of it, it's like a it's like accounting really so what was the verdict then what's more environmentally friendly so you know we were saying there's no just good bad answer there is scale yeah of at what point is it better to have an e-reader or not? The paper, well, this article based it on another paper and the paper based it on, sorry, academic paper. Mm-hmm. <laughs> it's getting really confusing if I start saying e-readers, books, and then a paper. <laughs> <laughs> and they based it on textbooks. That's a weird choice because I wouldn't want to read a textbook on an e-reader, but okay. That was their basis. And they used an iPad rather than a traditional e-ink reader. So I also thought this changes the way it goes because an iPad is multifunctional, whereas an e-reader is only a book. Yeah, some of them do audio, but the point of the e-reader is they use far less energy because of the technology that's inside yeah. them than an iPad. So so this is the other <laughs> issue is like there's so many considerations, you know, is that a standard? Is, yeah. Does everyone read on an iPad or not? But essentially, there is a graph with multiple lines. That works well on an audio-only medium. <laughs> I know. So if you use the iPad only for reading books, you would have to read between 10 and 15 textbooks before it has the same environmental impact in terms of greenhouse gas emissions. So it might have other environmental impacts. Didn't even cover, cover that. Right. So is that in a lifetime? In a yeah. lifetime of owning an iPad? Well, that depends on how academic you are, I suppose. I don't think I read that many textbooks when I was in academia, though. And also, how much of the textbook are you reading? You, you know, I might have, I might go through multiple, but only read like a chapter. Maybe a, a more useful one would have been minutes spent reading. Yeah, then that becomes more of a social experiment, I guess, <laughs> which is part of the sustainability thing. So it should be in there. I think essentially, you have to use your e-reader a certain amount before it kind of does a environmental payback. So if you're an avid reader, yeah. then it makes sense. If you're a casual reader, then maybe a book isn't that bad. Fair enough. No, I'm guessing these were all like brand new books. No, I went to my library and got a 20-year-old book. Yeah, I think the read. assumption was a brand new one. 
So again, textbooks, they're often like, you yeah. know, there's a whole resale market because no student's going to read that, keep their textbook on their bookshelf forever. It's unlikely. And it's not like that knowledge is going to change a whole lot mm. if it's a well-established field. It's interesting to see that that sort of study has been done though, and there's it's only quite a small part of just that industry and to find out if an entire industry is sustainable you need to look at a lot more things from the sound of it like how people use that product i mean you could how far do you take it you have to look at how are they generating their electricity to charge the ipad so some of these you have to base on location because energy plays such a big part of a lot of things Mm. that where it's manufactured if it's manufactured Let's say France versus the US. France are, have a lot of nuclear electricity. So emissions from a product manufactured there would differ quite a lot to somewhere with lots of fossil fuels, for example. So yeah, there's a lot of considerations into every single environmental impact. I mean, I almost get a decision paralysis whenever I have to buy anything new. <laughs> I just try not to. For the same reason, it just seems easier to let things fall apart. Got back four pairs of shoes that uh, I probably should throw out, but I really don't want to buy new ones because I'm going to have that same debate. But also shoe shopping is annoying. I really don't like shoe shopping. No, if you've got strange shaped feet like me, yeah, you really don't want to go down that route. Well, I feel like everyone must have strange shaped feet because no one that I know really enjoys shoe shopping. Maybe I just have a very specific subset of friends, though. Yeah, that might not be down to feet shape. That might be down to just mindset. Maybe. (laughs) So you talked about sustainable development, which suggests it's something that industry engineers, scientists are all moving towards. In general, yeah. I'm not sure it was true some years ago. It's really at the forefront now. It sort of makes me wonder what would the future look like? Is it even possible to imagine a future that encompasses those three pillars of sustainability? Because at the minute, I feel like a lot of companies are driven just by making profit and things like the environment and social aspects aren't considered as fully. But maybe that's me being really cynical. I think a lot of companies are doing it to stay in business, aren't they? And that in itself is sustainable because that keeps their business going. If they stop making money, that does stop their business. Again, it goes back to philosophy. If it gets the same result, does it matter how you got there? Isn't that kind of like saying it doesn't matter that I cut all these trees down? No, I mean, it doesn't matter that the company did sustainable things because it got the money because they also did the sustainable thing. That's what I mean. Okay. So which came first, sort of um, purchasing power, pressuring them to do something Mm, differently or people forcing them to shift their mindset or them shifting their mindset first? I get you. Yeah, I think it is an interesting idea. What would it actually look like in practice? We know one way to not go, which is don't look up. Oh, that film was so... I know it was meant to be funny, but I found it so depressing. Maybe I've got a weird sense of humour. I mean, if you have a dark sense of humour, it's pretty funny. I mean, spoiler alert, everyone dies. Not every... Well, oh, actually, they did, didn't they? Yeah, yeah. <laughs> Even the rich that thought they'd escaped... Well, escaped the impending disaster. Yeah. But yeah, we, we can't sleepwalk. We can't do things as we are doing. We will have a problem. We have a problem with climate change, but then what would it look like if we were, inverted commas, sustainable? I guess it starts out with companies becoming more efficient in resource use, which I, I, I suspect they probably are. It's when, I think we said this in the zero waste episode as well, it's when that gets out into the world, what happens to it then? So there needs to be some way for us to recover these 
jumpers we were talking about, jumpers that have been distributed around the world and get them back into some way of making them into a new jumper or something of equal or greater value. Yeah, circular economy. Yeah, I think that would be a huge step in the right direction, you know, making sure we do things more than once. It's repeatable, like a repeatable experiment because we've gone back to the same state. Yeah, it's a bit like Lego. You can take it all apart and then put it back together again. Mm. This is something I'm quite a big advocate of because I've already described how much I don't enjoy shopping. (laughs) Not having as many things. Yeah, or just being more self-sufficient with what we have got. Again, if I'm thinking like a process, if our house is a uh, closed system, there is nothing leaving it that you can't replace. Have I described this right? Because, I mean, I replace the food in the house every week and it comes in packaging and the packaging is replaced. And it goes straight into the bin. Yeah. So there's making sure that nothing leaves your house that isn't useful. Yeah. And then I guess we at some point will probably have, because the way we live, it's not possible that we have to do something to sort of repair the systems that we have damaged. You know, a lot of land that we've built on originally wasn't land perfect for living in. It was forest. So we've got to find a way to sort of readdress the natural environment again reintroducing beavers beavers how do we get to the point where beavers are asking us what's this plant (laughs) i've not seen it because i've not lived here for 50 years (laughs) in that sort of world you'd see wildlife walking down the street would we still have streets what would we have instead i assume this isn't a future we're all flying around unless we've gone with um our biomimicry episode in all developed wings <laughs> is that a more sustainable way to live if we live vertically instead of horizontally i guess we kind of do in a way in cities with skyscrapers how many episodes are we going to cross reference this could be a record man we could we could try it <laughs> we could try it yeah i mean vertical living where you've got lifts and things in there and you might get uh, trapped and you're not going to see a lot of wildlife in a skyscraper i am personally a big fan of living on or near the ground yeah but it does mean if we did live more vertically, we would have more space for wildlife. So is that something we should embrace? I mean, I also like living near the ground too. If everyone wants that, then what do we do? I feel like the idea isn't to remove people from nature and let nature claim most of the world back. It's to live with nature so rather than concentrating people into massive skyscrapers, we'd be more spread out in smaller populations. Maybe. Yeah, I've heard of the sort of 20 minute village or town idea where you kind of have hubs. Everything you need is in a 20 minute walk, which would you know make transport a lot easier for people. You know, we wouldn't be commuting far distances just for a weekly shop. And it'd just be more accessible for the elderly, for the people with mobility issues. I suppose that depends on what you want. Because I live in a rural area and I don't drive and I can do most of the things I want just on foot or on bike. But then I'm not the sort of person that goes shopping a lot, obviously. There's also home delivery if you want to use it. And is that something that would maybe be removed if everything's a lot closer? I would like to not be as reliant on places like Amazon and eBay, which for me would mean ways of repairing things myself on my doorstep rather than buying the tools to repair it. But then we do live with some very complex items. Is it possible for us to know how to repair everything? It's an interesting question. Like if my iPad breaks and it needs a new processor, say, where's that processor manufactured? Does it make sense to have a manufacturing place on my doorstep or do you have a few of them? and then ship things around the world. I think supply chains 
are probably here to stay because in some respect it is efficient to have hubs of expertise if we all try to make everything we would run out of time quite quickly I was thinking about how useful it is that I don't have to make my own soap because you could make your own soap at home don't know where you find a sodium hydroxide from well you can get the caustic out of um, ash that you boil from so you burn a tree it doesn't sound very environmentally <laughs> and then you boil the ash oh no <laughs> yeah um, I've not tried it myself I don't know how efficient that is but yeah I see your point that yeah you, you probably just buy the hydroxide from a chemicals company mm. and then is it worth you doing that or is it worth someone else specializing in doing that but that's kind of where we went when all this stuff became really specialized and you had to buy everything there has to be some sort of balance and there's a difference between making soap which could be done quite locally and making a processor for an ipad which seems a bit more specialist to me anyway yeah because also all the resources you want are not all in one place so if you've got rare earth elements you need to find them they're only in very concentrated in some very specific parts of the world where do you get them from yeah or do you find a way of doing it without them do we all just turn the clocks back 50 60 years and live in victorian times i think it'd be a tough sell for us all i don't think we could go back to victorian times i think we know too much (laughs) there's a mix of technology behavior systems governance that will all help us towards sustainability at the end of the day i think everything has to work together i don't think only technology can solve it or only people changing their behavior can do it um i think we're kind of it's too big of a machine (laughs) to stop (laughs) so we're now on this course for the future of technology and systems and supply chains and communities that are all flourishing and we're not necessarily thinking about profit but we're also thinking about the society and the environment as well does that sound like a fair assessment of what sustainability is i think so some people particularly corporate sustainability would probably say now profit's still in there but i think that's where you know sort of thinking about social enterprises you know you can have a good wage and also do good for other people and that business will run it's just we have to change the mindset that there are oh no it's going into politics man i'm gonna stop there (laughs) (laughs) fair enough so having rambled around the subject a bit and gotten distracted by various habits and random film and tv references and referencing pretty much every single episode we could think of (laughs) sounds like that's a good place to leave it yeah yep (laughs) cool so hopefully we've given you a good idea of what engineers and the UN defines sustainability. Talk through what it means in practice. And then after getting distracted a bit, we've used the critical thinking of the hive mind of me and Antonia to speculate on what a sustainable world could look like. And now we have a favour to ask. We've been doing this for quite a long time and we'd really love to get your support. So it would be great if you could buy us a cup of coffee, a tea or a beer. And to do that, you can check the link in the show notes to see how you can help. And if you want to have a chat with us about this or anything else, you can find us on Twitter or you can find us on Instagram or Reddit. Thank you for listening. Thanks. Bye. The views expressed in this podcast belong entirely to the person that said them. They do not represent any industry or organisation. If you enjoyed listening to these views, it would really help us out if you could rate us, leave a review and tell a friend. This podcast was sponsored by no one, but if you're interested in funding us to continue to have frank discussions about science and engineering, please get in touch.